This morning we're going to continue our study uh, through the Gospel of John, or in the Gospel of John, as we continue to work through John's Gospel. Uh, next Sunday and the Sunday that follows, Christmas Day, we'll kind of have two messages that will be focused in on, on Christmas. And so this week we'll, we'll be in the Gospel of John, but then the next two weeks we'll be doing a special Christmas message. And then, of course, we have our Christmas Eve service as well, which you're invited to attend. Uh, and so we'll be in John this morning. As we begin, um, I suspect condemnation is not a topic that brings a smile to your face. It is, in fact, a, a lofty word and a lofty idea. It's not a subject that we enjoy because it's not really, it's not an experience that we enjoy. We don't like to be condemned. That is, we don't like it when judgment comes against us. Nobody likes that experience. <laughs> Yet if you've, li if you've lived a day in this world, then you've experienced condemnation. And for as much as we don't like being condemned, we're pretty good at pointing the finger. And so, as a people, we're pretty practiced at passing judgment. We may have received condemnation for the choices that we've made, the way we raise our kids, the way we spend our money, the entertainment that we consume, the places we go, the way we spend our time. And there's no matter too minuscule. I would condemn you for drinking a Pepsi, and you might condemn me for driving a hybrid car. <laughs> Joking aside, condemnation is like a theater in which sometimes we're seated in the audience receiving condemnation, and other times we're standing on the stage doling out or offering condemnation. Through the course of our lives, we are condemned and we condemn others. There's a kind of tension here. From one perspective, we long to say, can't we all just get along? If I tried to pass a non-condemnation policy, you'd probably want to vote for it. If I wrote a treatise on how to not pass judgment on our neighbor, well, you'd probably champion it. However, there's a problem. The problem is that as soon as I make any statement about truth or falsehood, good or evil, moral or immoral, we enter into the arena of condemnation. Someone will agree and others will disagree. Of course, condemning someone for their choice of beverage is one thing. Condemning someone for their religion, well, it's quite another. That's because the stakes are higher. One might leave you with a bad taste in your mouth, I would argue. The other, the other might land you in hell. I don't want to be flippant or irreverent. But that's really the issue here. As we move toward more significant matters, the stakes become higher, and condemnation becomes more unsettling. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to teach us about condemnation. That's the subject of our message this morning. Not so much about the details of condemnation, but how condemnation is a natural result of his coming. And as you might expect, the stakes are high. 
Jesus loves us too much to address lesser things. In our message last week, I told you that Jesus gives us two reasons why he must be lifted up. We explored the first reason last week. Jesus must be lifted up to display God's greatest love. And we'll explore the second reason this morning. Jesus must be lifted up to display man's greatest need. But before we do that, I would invite you to stand so we could read our passage of Scripture this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I noted last week that the central mission of Jesus was salvation, that the coming of Jesus was not an act of God's judgment. Verse 17 is very clear. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world, not this, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John wants us to see the coming of Jesus wholly or entirely as a demonstration of God's love for the world. So, Jesus came to bring salvation, but... As we're learning, salvation comes with judgment. As we've discussed, the natural and logical consequence of providing salvation for some is that judgment will fall on others. I illustrated this last week with a sentence saying something like, sunlight, something like the way that sunlight naturally throws a shadow, so salvation naturally throws judgment. For Jesus to teach us, that all who look upon the Son of Man will be saved is to also teach us that all who look away from the Son of Man will be judged. They are two sides to to the one coin. Again, Jesus came to bring salvation, but the fact of salvation for those who believe implies judgment on those who don't. What Jesus does in verses 18 through 21 is explain the shadow. He unpacks the details related to the judgment that naturally comes as a result of his coming. We might interject at this point that these verses and this entire discussion eliminates any possibility of universalism. 
Universalism is, or teaches that God's love is so vast that it actually saves all people. This is in conflict with our passage this morning. Yes, God's love is so vast that it could save all people. You might say his love is sufficient to save all people. Yet, in the perfect plan of God, he has set a condition in which not all will be saved. The condition is belief. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his unique son, his one and only son, that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is sufficient to save all people, but we don't use this word very often, but efficacious to save only those who believe. Or you could say it this way, God's love is enough for all, but only effective for those who believe. Jesus teaches that salvation is offered to the world, not that salvation is provided for the world. Here I'm trying to cut the theology really tight. If Jesus did teach that salvation was provided for the world, that is all people, he would have no reason to speak of the judgment that falls on those who do not believe. It would be illogical. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus taught us that the Son of Man must be lifted up to display God's greatest love, was our discussion last week. This week, he will teach us a second truth, and it's this. I've said it already. The Son must be lifted up to display God's greatest need. And I want to explore this using four questions. The first question is this. Who is condemned? Who is condemned? Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. It's not the believer, but the unbeliever that is condemned. The decisive factor is faith. The greatest sin is unbelief. Whoever does not believe is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If it sounds redundant, it is. What does Jesus mean when he uses the word condemned? Well, the sense is to be judged or to be punished. Jesus said in John 3, 16, that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. To perish is to not just die physically, it includes that, but it's more than that. It's to face judgment, to be condemned, to suffer, to suffer separation from God and the people and things that we love. It's to experience all that Jesus describes hell to be. As we discussed, discovered last week, it's good for us to plunge into the depths of God's love, and we did that last week. And it's this feature of John 3.16 that is so often noted. For God so loved the world. We always run back to that verse. But we cannot overlook that God's love is directed towards saving men from a dire fate. In studying this verse and its context, we see that Jesus is teaching that men stand in real danger. John puts it another way in John 3.36. He says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Condemnation, judgment, perishing, and here the wrath of God remains on him. But in the present tense, it's a continuous action. It's no passing phenomenon. So long as he remains in a state of unbelief, the wrath of God abides. Somewhat more mysterious, these words from, John, from Jesus in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, that is, I am the light of the world, you will die in your sins. The ambiguity adds to the horror. We can hardly imagine what it means to die in your sins. If the first question is, who is condemned? Then the second must be, when are we condemned? And the answer is found in verse 18. We covered this a little bit last week. Already is the key idea there in verse 18. We think of judgment as a future reality, but John teaches us that it's not only a future reality. It's a present reality. Judgment is already in operation. While it's true the unbeliever will one day meet God's judgment, it's equally tr true that he is already judged. If you persist in unbelief, that is the sense here, persisting in unbelief, a state of continuous non-belief, you don't have to wait until judgment day. You are condemned already. You are presently in a state of condemnation, of judgment, of perishing, of having the wrath of God abide on you, of dying in your sins, if that can be a state. Your unbelief has shut you up to condemnation. This brings us to a third question. Why are we condemned? Why are we condemned? We've already stated the first reason why we are condemned, and it's because we have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's made that point repeatedly. When we fail to believe in the name of Jesus, when we fail to trust Him for eternal life, we condemn ourselves. In the, in the way that belief secures eternal life, unbelief secures eternal condemnation. Jesus really unpacks this question, why are we condemned, in verses 19 and 20. He says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. One thing we should note here is that Jesus is not saying God has decreed that we are condemned. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we are beyond saving. That's never true. It's never true that we're trapped in our unbelief. It's not that kind of declaration. Quite the contrary, the Bible affirms time and time again that unbelief can be turned into belief. You know Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? It says, you will be saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Scripture says. For all the powerful and harrowing language used this morning about unbelief and its consequences, never once are we without hope. From the youngest mind that comes to understand the simple truth of Christ to the oldest mind that has searched out and up to this point has rejected the most complex truths of Christ, none are outside God's saving grace. I love that phrase from Romans 10. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. It's right there. So the first reason why man, why we, are condemned is that we have not believed in Christ, the Son of God. And I say we intentionally. I put us in this because we've either been there or we're in there. At some point, we didn't believe. Find a second reason in verse 19. Light has come into the world. You might remember John referred to Jesus as the true light in John 1.9. John 1.9. Light is an important theme to John and one we will see him return to, chapter 8, verse 12, when we hear Jesus himself say, I am the light of the world. When we think of Jesus as the true light or as the light of the world, we think of him as a, a source of light, source of eternal life, in the way that light is a prerequisite for all earthly life, so the light of Christ is a prerequisite for eternal life. The reason that the deepest stars have no life is because they have no light. Yet here in John 3, light is being used to say something about judgment. Light does not only provide light, but also reveals truth and falsehood. Its very presence enacts judgment. I imagine you enjoy music. I love music. I imagine you enjoy music. Interestingly, I was over at visiting Becky uh, even yesterday, and we sat on her floor and listened to a record. It was awesome. I imagine you have a, a, a favorite kind of music. Well, let's say you enjoy a great symphony, and you'd like to share this enjoyment with a friend, so you invite them to a symphony concert. You find your seats. The music begins, and you're instantly, as they say, enraptured by the music. About halfway through the second movement, you know that's the slow one. You're so taken aback by the gentleness of the piece, the beauty of it, that you turn to your friend to express your happiness, and there they are, sleeping. Here you've taken them to an experience, a momentous event, your favorite symphony, 
And there they are, dozing. Well, your friend has just passed judgment on themselves. At least by your standards. An experience designed to bring happiness has become one of judgment. There's no music in your friend's soul. They were confronted with greatness and they took a nap. Well, more likely, maybe you're a fan of symphony, I don't know, but more likely you take someone to a baseball game. You recommend an inspiring book. You share a favorite sermon or a favorite poem. Yet, their reaction comes back like a kind of judgment. When a a person finds no beauty or no entertainment in our recommendations, we conclude they must have a blind spot in their soul. A man once toured a famous art gallery. The gallery was filled with priceless masterpieces, paintings of unquestionable genius. At the end of the tour, the man expressed disinterest in the paintings. He said something like, I don't think much of these old pictures. The tour guide responded, Sir, I would remind you that these pictures are no longer on trial, but those who look at them are. It's one thing for us to judge another by the standard of a great symphony or a masterpiece. It's quite another for God to judge by the standard of his son. If, if that man sees a great symphony in Jesus, then he is on his way to salvation. But if that man only sees old pictures, well, then he stands condemned. Importantly, it's our reaction that condemns. God sent Jesus in love in order that the world should be saved through him. But that which was sent in love has become condemnation. But it's not God who has condemned that man. God loves us. Man has condemned himself. We are condemned then because, number one, because we have not believed in the name of the Son of God. Number two, because light has come into the world and A third reason, because we love the darkness rather than the light, because our works are evil. Like a child who climbs into a box and closes the lid upon himself, we climb into the darkness and close the lid. We choose to live in darkness. More than that, people loved the darkness. And verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. The unbeliever loves the darkness and hates the light. With a lid closed upon us, we are immersed in darkness and wrongdoing. The reason we love the darkness is not based on logic or argumentation. The unbeliever is not like a judge who hears both sides of a case and weighs both sides and utters a judgment. He does not hear the case for darkness and the case for light and from a neutral place choose darkness. That's not how it works. The reason we love the darkness is entirely moral. As Carson writes, They were not willing to live by the truth. They valued their pride more than their integrity, their prejudice more than their contrite faith. Or as Paul makes very clear in Romans 1.18, men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
speaking very practically, men don't ultimately need to be argued into the faith. They need to repent of their sinful deeds. Speaking very specifically, if you can hear my voice and you're not a believer, it's not because ultimately because you've been failed to, that, you've not, uh, that we've failed to convince you of faith. That's not the highest reason why. There's a place for logic and argumentation. There's a place for making an argument for our faith, what we might call apologetics. All those things are good. But at the end of the day, the unbeliever doesn't believe. He does, he's not saved, not for failure of an argument, but because he loves the darkness, because he loves his sin. It's a moral issue. Lenski writes, every man who rejects the divine light of truth does this at bottom, he says, for a moral reason. Namely, because he will not part from the evil that he loves, and that thus marks his soul and his life. This is why the clarion call of the New Testament is repent and believe. It's to turn away from the darkness, to turn away from the sins that you love. I think the actions of Judas illustrate these things. Recall how our Savior was betrayed. Matthew 26, verses 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, a day's wage. What do you think Judas thought he gained with 30 pieces of silver? What was he purchasing? Later we read in Matthew 27, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, and you can just, oh, you can feel it. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Here is something profound. Sinners believe they secure their end by their sin. And indeed, they do secure their end. That which Judas took as gain the silver became his end. Still as of old, man by himself is priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. Morris writes, What John makes us see with painful clarity is that in their success lies their condemnation. I hope you can see it. I hope I'm making that point clear. Precisely that on which they congratulate themselves, the pinnacle of their success, as they see it, is their penalty. Their successful pursuit of darkness means that they shut themselves off forever from the light. The light streams from the love so vividly set forth on Calvary. If a man prefers anything whatever to surrendering to such love, he has not secured a gain, but utter loss whether he sees it or whether he does not. 
Judas sold himself, not Christ. Who is condemned? The unbeliever. When are we condemned? The text says already. Why are we condemned? Well, because we have not believed in the name of the Son of God, because the light has come into the world, because we love the darkness rather than the light. And there's one final question. How do we escape condemnation? Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's a surprising feature in this verse. If people are condemned because they practice evil, that's what verse 19 said, condemned for practicing evil, we would expect to escape condemnation by practicing righteousness. That would be a parallel idea. However, there is not a parallel between verses 19 and 20 and verse 21. They don't balance out. Jesus doesn't say that people escape condemnation by doing good things. doesn't say that. What Jesus says, and it's, it's a special way of saying this, that we escape condemnation by doing what is true. By doing what is true. Now given John says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, excuse me, in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says to Pilate in John 18, 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I believe to practice the truth is to take Jesus as truth. To believe that what he says is true. To place our faith in him for eternal life. To accept that his life and his death can become my life and my death. As I am to live in humble submission to him. And this is what it looks like, Jesus says, to come to the light. The unbeliever refuses to come to the light because he fears exposure. Verse 20. Again, these are not parallel. Yet, in the case of the believer, he doesn't prance forward to parade his righteousness. Again, the unbeliever, he, he's afraid that his, his deeds would be exposed. Well, it's not that the believer says, look at my deeds. That's not what it says. It says something different. He comes to the light in order, in order that what's clearly seen is that his works have been carried out in God. It's so God-centric. It's all about what God has done in our lives. Not what we've done. It's not, look what I've done. It's look what God has done in me, through me. Which is a, a, it's what he's saying there in that, in that very unique phrase so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, the tracks of the unbeliever are directed by evil deeds. The tracks of the believer are not directed by righteous deeds, but by a longing to show that his deeds have been done through God. God. 
Now, we do at some point need to bring this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus to a close. So I do hope to do that. I know we've spent a lot of time here in these verses. A couple things as I do that, a couple thoughts here. Recall that Nicodemus was a very religious and learned man. This was a man that John calls a ruler of the Jews. He was a man who Jesus calls the teacher of Israel. Yet, Nicodemus missed even some of the most important facts about his religion. I think there's a lesson here for us. Put it this way. Spiritual ignorance is found in the minds of great people. I believe such ignorance can be found even among us. Time in the faith, learning, rank are never to be taken as proof that we have really been taught by the Spirit. It's possible that some of us might be called sons of Nicodemus. We've learned and even are of high rank, yet we may have missed some of the most important facts about Christ's church. I'm not above this. I suppose this reminds us to remain humble no matter our experience and no matter our standing, to remain teachable and open to training and correction. There's a wonderful illustration of this in the New Testament. It's found in Acts chapter 28, and it's in relationship or in regards to a man named Apollos. Maybe you remember this man. Acts 28 tells a story. This is Acts 28, verses 24 through 28. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, a learned man. He was competent in the scriptures. He was well-versed. He knew his Bible. He was taught well. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. You might say there was a hole in his theology. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. There's not even a speed bump. This man didn't think twice about it. He received it. He took it in. He corrected himself, and he kept moving. In Apollos, we find a wonderful example of a man who, although learned and well-versed, remained teachable and open to training and correction. It's this kind of attitude or this kind of outlook that we ought to pursue. The story of Nicodemus reminds us that even the most learned need correction. And the story of Apollos help us see the beauty of a teachable spirit. Something else this meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus does is teach us again the way that we benefit from the cross of Christ or the death of Christ. And that way is to put our faith and trust in Christ. We've underscored the point repeatedly, but it's of the utmost importance. Jesus makes the point three times. Whoever believes in the Son of Man may have eternal life, 3.15. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, 3.16. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned, 3.18. 
Faith is the same, th- same thing as believing, and it's faith that is the key to salvation. If we have faith, we have life. If we don't have faith, we don't have life. J.C. Ryle reminds us that faith must always stand alone. He writes this, A justified man, no doubt, will always be a holy man. True believing will always be accompanied by godly living, but that which gives a man an interest in Christ is not his living, but his faith. If we would know whether our faith is genuine, we do well to ask ourselves how we are living. But if we would know I have a problem. But if we would know whether we are justified by Christ, there is but one question to be asked. That question is, do we believe? Forgive me for that. There's one final lesson found in these verses, and it's this. We are to blame for the loss. We are to blame for the loss of our soul. We are to blame for the loss of our soul. Verse 19 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What this does, this verse does, is clear God of any injustice in the condemnation of men. The verse teaches us that although salvation is entirely of the Lord, man's ruin, his loss, is entirely from himself. The law of the harvest applies. You reap what you sow. This truth helps us see God rightly. If you picture God holding the sinner's hand and directing him to damnation, well, you have an incorrect picture of God. For all the Bible says about his sovereignty, the Bible never gives us that picture of God. Albeit a mystery... God is sovereign, yet he proclaims through the prophet Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. So we have in John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's the true picture of God. God is not only pleading that we turn from our evil ways, but he sent his son to purchase our redemption. Jesus is teaching us that there is no unwillingness on God's part to receive us. No matter what we've done. If we fail to come, the fault is entirely on our side. Our blood will be on our own head. We will make shipwreck of our own soul. The blame will be on our own door. Our eternal misery will be the result of our own choice. Our destruction will be by the work of our own hand. These are weighty and solemn truths, are they not? Do you believe them? Now, John here in John chapter 3 doesn't record any response from Nicodemus. Nick, the final words from Nicodemus were, were just that third question, how can these things be? It's all we ever hear Nicodemus say. 
But we are, he is mentioned again, two passages of Scripture, John chapter 7, we hear from him, but also John chapter 19. I'm going to go there and close with this. It's a fitting picture to end our time talking about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. This is John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, of course, after the death of Jesus, after the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as in the burial, burial custom of, this, of the Jews. Excuse me. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they had laid Jesus there. I just think that's the sweetest picture. No words are offered, but a man prepare another man's body for, for burial. It's one, thing, it's one thing to say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's quite another to look upon his broken body to see the horror of the cross. I imagine there wasn't a bit of that body that didn't bear that. Nicodemus held the mutilated body of Christ in his hands and he treasured it. Oh, that we would.